When Joe Biden was running for office, he called Saudi Arabia a pariah, and he vowed to make it pay the price for the grisly murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But this week, as part of his first trip to the Middle East, President Biden will visit Saudi Arabia and meet with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was implicated in that murder. What explains this turn of events? How does the skyrocketing price of oil factor in? And how should we view Saudi Arabia? Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ilan Jurno. With me today is my colleague, Nikos Sotirakopoulos. Welcome, Nikos. Hi, Ilan. Hi, everyone. It's good to have you. So I thought we should start by talking about the significance of this trip. So this is, as I said, the first foreign or Middle East trip that Biden has taken. And that's a statement. It, it, it signifies some prioritization of his views. And it's a signal to the countries that he's visiting. So he's visiting today. I believe he's landing in or has landed in Israel. He will make a visit to the West Bank. And after that, he moves on to Saudi Arabia. And I, I thought we should start with talking a bit about the issue that people are throwing at Biden as, as criticism, which is the 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which happened in Turkey at the Saudi embassy. And there's a lot of information that's come out since then in terms of what happened. I remember that, uh, you probably remember that too, as a wake up call for a lot of people who saw it as, I think, a shock that there, there's a regime that could actually do this to somebody. They could lure him into the embassy or the consulate, I forget which one it was, murder him, chop him up, make him hard to find, and then make him go away and, and assume that no one will be bothered and that they could get away with this. There was actually one person who bought the official story from the Saudis, and that was then President Trump, who thought that, well, maybe it was an accident or a, an operation that uh, went uh, bad. But since then, there has been a lot of research and there are impl indications implicating high uh, persons very high in the hierarchy of Saudi Arabia, including Crown Prince uh, himself, as some people who were involved in this, uh, in this mission of this hitman were part of his, uh, of, his, uh, of his bodyguard team. But also there were many people who were in Turkey with an official role, with diplomatic passports. So it is very difficult not to point the finger to the regime in Saudi Arabia and saying they had something to do with, uh, with this murder. But of course, this is not the only way that the regime has, that, that there are many questions to be raised about the Saudi regime, even in its modern version. Because its modern version is that the, the prince uh, who is going to be the next king, he has this vision about Saudi Arabia modernizing till 2030. So this was one of the reasons why at least the previous administration, the Trump administration, said that, look, Saudi Arabia has traditionally been our friends and now with Prince Salman, they can be our friends more uh, without that much guilt because now they're turning also to be better guys. They're modernizing. There are opening some freedoms. For example, I think women can now drive and this is considered very groundbreaking in Saudi Arabia. So there was this climate that uh, Saudi Arabia is moving on the right direction. But as you said, the Khashoggi murder put all this uh, narrative, put a huge question mark over this narrative. 
I think it's worth pulling on that thread of you mentioned women were allowed to drive as of 2018, I think and that was the doing of the crown prince. Many people refer to him by his initials MBS. The important point I think that is not appreciated is that the Khashoggi incident and the uh, the, the fact that women were allowed to drive, these are small windows into the nature of Saudi Arabia. And by comparison, the Khashoggi thing is, it's extraordinary for something like that to happen in any free country. That would be really frightening. But in Saudi Arabia, this is not unusual in the sense that the regime is it's an absolute monarchy. Even with the, the, what you mentioned, we should come back to that, this effort to modernize the regime by the crown prince. Even with all of that, it's still the case that there are really uh, severe restrictions on what people can do, what they can say. There is no free speech. There never has been in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I think just a couple more examples of what the country is like, and I think it's important to dwell on. There was an incident, I think that same year, uh, of a young woman, I think she was in her late teens, who her name was Rahaf Mohammed, and she made headlines because she went through this elaborate plan to escape from her own family and to leave Saudi Arabia. She was, she got a ticket, she, she made her way to Bangkok and she barricaded herself in a hotel room because she knew that as soon as a Saudi representative would show up or her father or her brother, they would just take her away and likely harm her. Uh, she was an atheist. She re rebelled against the guardianship laws, which require women when they leave the house to have a chaperone, a male chaperone who's a relative or trusted family member and she re re rebelled against it and she raised awareness of what's going on by tweeting out her plight and eventually she became a refugee from her own country and she, she made her way to Canada. You can read about her uh, experience in a, in a book which I recently read called uh, Rebel and it's interesting to see the perspective of someone who has that will to escape but just think about what it means for a teenager not just to rebel against their parents over trivial things like music or curfew but just they wanted to murder her and she fled uh, and other examples just one more that i think is it goes to the issue you raised about the the narrative about the crown prince being a reformer there is a, a fairly famous activist who's a woman in saudi arabia and i hope i pronounce her name correctly it's Lujan al hathlul and she has been pushing for women to gain the, the permission to drive because it's not a right. And she was doing this for years. And she also was pushing for the guardianship laws to at least be relaxed, if not removed. Now, even though both of those things have happened since she started campaigning, it was after the driving permission was given that she was thrown in jail, accused of terrorism, and she's not been released. So you would think that if the thing that she was right about, that the regime finally conceded, she should, this is a good idea, we should let women drive and so forth, that she's still languishing in a prison. There are others that I've written about uh, another dissident, which I think people might be interested to learn more about it, but I will only mention him. His name is Raif Badawi, who was trying to bring forward more ideas that are, have greater appreciation for individual freedom and freedom of speech. He was a blogger. He was sentenced on a crime of blasphemy, very interesting case. He was sentenced to, I think, $250,000 uh, uh, fine plus a jail term and a thousand lashes. Now, he not all thousand of those were given to him, but it just put it really vividly. This person was punished 
for speaking about what he thinks society should look like, meaning it should be less authoritarian, less dictatorial, less religious. And for that, he, he languished for many years in a prison. So this is a regime that is truly medieval in, it, in the sense of the kind of punishments that it meets out, its restrictions on freedom. And I think this is a crucial part of the context for thinking about what does it even look like to evaluate Saudi Arabia? How should that factor into policymaking? And then bringing it back to Biden's trip, you can't think about whether Biden should go or what he should do if he does go absent this wider context of the, the moral character of the regime. It's a, it's a horrendously tyrannical regime. So I thought it might be useful, Nikos, if you can just give us a bit of a picture of so the historical development of Saudi Arabia is just a wider context still uh, to give us that context. So the main question after all you've told us is why would any free country have anything to do with Saudi Arabia? So and yet, at least since 1945, Saudi Arabia has been a very close ally of the United States. Now, why is Saudi Arabia an important country? So first of all, it's one of the top oil producers in the world. But also, symbolically, it's a country which, is, which includes two of the holy cities of Islam, Mecca and Medina. And it is a country which is run by a coalition by an intellectual coalition, by the royal family, the dynasty of Sauds, and the religious movement of the Wahhabis. So this is a Sunni, this is a Sunni uh, movement which has a fundamentalist approach in Islam. And we have this, let's say, intellectual coalition. That political power is with the family of Saud, and the crown prince, as you mentioned, is part of this dynasty, and the intellectual affairs are left to the clerics, are left to religious authorities. Now, how come the United States have found an ally in, the, in, in Saudi Arabia? Now, the pragmatists of foreign policy say that there are common interests. What type of common interests? Stability in energy prices. Most importantly, perhaps, uh, regional stability. So Saudi Arabia, has a very strong interest in itself being the center of the Islamic world, which means is very suspicious of Iran, particularly after 1979. So Saudi Arabia is uh, very skeptical toward, is, is actually hostile to Iran. So some people could say the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I put a question mark on this and Elan, you can talk a bit more about that. Now, there were many clouds in the relationship between United States and Saudi Arabia around 9-11. 15 out of the 19 hijackers who participated in the terrorist attack of 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. But that's not the only issue. Also, it turns out that some people who had some links to the regime had something to do with funding these terrorists, but also it's beyond any doubt that many institutions, quasi-official institutions, because again, there is no civil society in Saudi Arabia, so a lot of funding to radical Islamists abroad comes from Saudi Arabia. And again, this is something which is proven. And this is information which mostly comes from American sources. So here's another question, Elan. With Khashoggi and who is behind the assassination, it's not that this is a rumor, let's say, or some secret services of a country came up with this. 
the American secret services have verified this. So we have this very weird balance. On the one hand, a historical strong relationship supposed based on common interests, mostly again regarding energy, regional stability, and not proliferation of Islamic terrorism. And on the other hand, we have time and again violations of individual rights and participations of people highly in the, in the, in the hierarchy of Saudi Arabia in very shady activities. So this is the situation and the history and where we are today with the American-Saudi relations. I think an important point that I want to draw out from your comment is this idea that we have common interests with Saudi Arabia, this long-standing relationship that many, many years now. And I challenge that. I challenge that the U.S. has a coherent policy towards Saudi Arabia, let alone to the rest of the region. And the one of the signs is this balancing of, well, we, we want oil prices to be stable. We want oil supplies. And on the other hand, well, we're going to turn a blind eye to the fact that the regime is a religious dictatorship, uh, not quite a theocracy, but it's definitely overlaps with the theocratic region. It's a religious, um, uh, highly religious and doctrinaire uh, dictatorship. And that has to count that has to be significant in your thinking about the character of the regime. And the other aspect of this, so it's both domestically, it takes religion very seriously. And the point that you mentioned, I wanna underline, it's the funding and proselytizing for the Wahhabi strain of Islam, which is a form of Islamic totalitarianism. Al-Qaeda hates the royal family, and they have a different view of what Islamic totalitarianism looks like. And the, the Iranians hate the, the Saudis because they have a, yet another version of what Islamic totalitarianism looks like. There are different strains of it, and there's still others I haven't mentioned. The essential is that this is what they think society should look like, as evidenced by the way they run their country and as evidenced by their proselytizing. There's also, uh, as you said, the evidence for Saudi involvement in the Islamist movement is I mean, there's really strong evidence for that. It's from reliable sources. It's not a question. I think it's a question, um, just the scale of it and can we know. And your point about there being no civil society, I think it's worth just explaining that a little bit more. So in Saudi Arabia, there's not a hard line, a hard division between the state and the royal family. They're one and the same. They overlap. And it's not clear when you hear about a Saudi charity that's funded by members of the royal family are you talking about members of the royal family who are actually in so officially have government positions or are they just on the periphery is it really independent from the government and i think the, the the lack of clarity between those things should just make you realize that it might not be a solvable question like you might not be able to answer that but you have to take seriously that this is the character of the regime and to think about one's interests and this is just develop this point about how to think about one's interests in the con in the context of the Middle East. One of the key things you have to take seriously as speaking from the, the American perspective, I think this is true for other free countries as well. It's not one detail that it's a dictatorship. It's essential to thinking about what kind of country it is and how you engage with it. It's not just, oh, they drive on the other side of the road. That's a minor concrete options about how you do that. Or their water taps are, you know, backwards and you know, left hot is cold and cold is hot. It's not that kind of detail. It's an essential, it's a fundamental of what this 
regime is like and it has to color what you think your relationship to it is what is it even possible to be and i think to to, to go back to the point earlier that we had a policy towards Saudi Arabia and you called it pragmatist. I think the way I would characterize that or to put it in different terms, it was, there was an absence of thinking in terms of principles. What is our, who are we? What kind of nation are we? What ideals do we care about? And how does that color our view of other nations? And, and the positive view that I hold and that it's informed by Ayn Rand's philosophy is that the essential principle that should guide us is the ideal of individual freedom. We, we are trying to live up to that as a society in the US and that should be our standard for evaluating others. That means you have to have a hard distinction, a black and white night and day distinction between dictatorships and free countries. And there, there are countries that are in transition or that are moving, um, lean more to one way or the other. You have to make, you have to evaluate them from that objective standard. And that's exactly what we haven't been doing with Saudi Arabia and the, on the contrary, the effect of our conduct toward them. So you mentioned uh, alliance against terrorism, and since it was a little bit clouded, you said after 9-11. <laughs> that's not how I remember it. Um, I have a slightly different view of how that, maybe that's an understatement on your part, but after 9-11, it was as if Saudi Arabia had nothing to do with Islamist terrorism, uh, nothing to do with Islamist movement, as if it never funded any of these groups or schools or charities to the tune of millions or actual terrorists. There's a story that uh, one of the leaders of Saudi Arabia went to George W. Bush's country estate in Texas and they hung out together. And, and the, everything you heard from the US government since 9-11 was the Saudis are our friends, contrary to all the evidence that is there. So it's an abandonment of our own principles. It's a negation of the actual facts that you would have to consider, whatever you think our priorities might be. And then it's an out of context emphasis on, well, we need oil prices or how else are we going to get oil? And I think we should come back to that, but that's not at all how to think about the way you define, evaluate other countries and then your relationship to them. So the absence of a policy leads us to this sort of appeasing approach to Saudi Arabia, where now tomorrow, the next day, uh, President Biden is going to shake hands with the crown prince, meet him, dignify him. And yet those hands that he's shaking have blood on them, not only of Jamal Khashoggi, but all of the Saudis who are in, in rotting in prisons and all of the Saudis who would want a better life and are denied it by the, by the regime. So you, it, it, we're betraying our own ideals in the, the approach we've taken towards Saudi Arabia. And I think that is, it's a, it harms us because we've put ourselves in a difficult position that's compounded over the years. We, we can't, we don't really know what we're doing with Saudi Arabia. And when something like the Khashoggi thing happens, you get the example of Trump who just can't think about these issues at all. And then now Biden, and it's interesting to contrast their different reactions, but what Biden claims to be proud of is that his administration released the CIA report implicating the crown prince in the Khashoggi murder. So look at how good we are in pressuring Saudi Arabia. And to me that that's, it's beneath a joke. That's if there is a report and we have evidence, of course it should be public. Why are you taking credit? The only reason they're taking credit is the, the Trump administration was so evasive. So if you're comparing yourself to that negative situation, then yeah, if you get to zero, that, that's an improvement. But it's nothing like what you would want to, to, to 
do with respect to Saudi Arabia. And and the other thing, this is the slogan, which I, I think oh, before I hand it back to you, I just want to stress how unprincipled this is. So after the release of this uh, CIA report and all the statements that Biden said, this is a pariah nation, I'm going to make them pay the price and so on. What the administration then decided is that we're going to, quote, recalibrate the relationship with Saudi Arabia, but not ruptured. So we're not giving up on it. We're just going to find another way to deal with them, which, which is just continuing a longstanding pattern of appeasement that is born of lacking any conception of our interests or the values that should inform us. So let me hand back to you. Me yeah, I was reading today what are the main policy reports of some key we'd call them neoconservative think tanks about Saudi Arabia. And you see this unbelievable approach which says, we know how bad they are, so we need to find the balance in terms of our common interest, but not become, let's say, bedfellows with them. The question is, though, what is to be gained by a relationship with Saudi Arabia? And how is it that everyone fails to see that? And everyone fails to see this because their approach to... Uh, geopolitics or however you want to call it, is based on so-called realism. I think we did a whole discussion on realism, which says that, oh, we need to have balance of power and we need to make sure that the bad guys don't buddy up with each other. Uh, it's been brought up that China has now a lot of influence in Saudi Arabia, a very high magnitude of imports and exports. But the idea comes back again and again. A, why you should be afraid of such a country? Why should you want to appease such a country? What is exactly the threat when you, the most powerful country in the world, why do you have to appease a country like Saudi Arabia, whose economy is very one-sided, obviously based on uh, oil production, and who hasn't got anywhere near your own capacities when it comes to military capacities? But if we don't want to see it from the negative, what is it to be afraid of? What do you have to gain? And the answer that will come back time and again is oil, petrodollars, something related to that. So do, do we want to comment on this, Elan? So is it, do we really need Arab oil and do we really need to appease the Middle East dictatorships so that we have a flow an uninterrupted and relatively stable flow of oil, particularly in the very difficult times that we are living these days with Russia and uh, the diminishing capacities of energy that come out of Russia and Ukraine? I think the answer is no, and I, I, I don't think you meant this to be a loaded question, but I think the answer is absolutely no. I don't think that was true even before the fracking revolution, which made America much more uh, capable of producing its own supplies of oil and gas, to the extraordinary supply. Um, I think if you look at this issue, if it were true that there were only, we can only get oil from Saudi Arabia and we need oil. I think oil is an incredible value and it's not something that's optional. I don't think you can move to another source of energy uh, comparable to it. I think there are things you might do to extract that oil from Saudi Arabia. I don't, it, part of the premise of the way people think about Saudi Arabia is, well, the royal family and all the ministries and whoever, the companies that are involved there in extracting the oil, they're, they're all entitled to it and we just have to deal with them. And my question is, 
why do you have that premise? Why do you think a dictatorial government is entitled to anything, let alone the, the royalties from the oil supply there? And I mean, if it really became an emergency crisis sort of thing, I think there would be an argument for liberating the oil from Saudi Arabia, putting it in the hands of non-dictatorial people, encouraging non-dictatorial people and rulers to supply. But I don't think it would ever get to that point. I think there are other things. I think Saudi Arabia needs us more than we need them in many ways. I think we've let them assume that it's the other way around because of the way we behave. We come cup in hand now as Biden is going because a big part of his agenda is to get the Saudis to agree to supply more oil or to affect the price. Uh, I don't think that's true that we are dependent on or even that there aren't solutions to the fact that if we ever got to be dependent on them that we couldn't resolve. I, I want to draw on something that you said, which is, I mean, you, you, you raised the issue of sort of realist thinking. We did a, did a different podcast about that recently. Um, I think that in some cases that's an influence. I don't think it's the dominant way of thinking. It, and it partly because I think it's it's quite a sophisticated view, even if I think it's wrong. And what often happens is it's hard to distinguish in practice from garden variety, ordinary, unprincipled behavior. So they, in many ways, if you start from a realist position and you start from who cares about principles, you often end up to the, in the same position or, because these views lead to similar kinds of behavior. And in that sense, I. I think a lot of foreign policy thinking in the U.S. is just it's unprincipled and it's unthinking and, and it's not even conceptual in many cases, very concrete bound, such that it, the kind of things you're raising, like the U.S. is very powerful uh, militarily. It's very powerful economically. It's, it has inordinate resources for oil and, and other kinds of fossil fuels. Those should be really high on your uh, um, uh, really high priorities for you to think about if you're thinking about, well, we have to deal with this, this nasty country, uh, this dictatorial religious regime, but those aren't the things we're thinking about. So, you know, one of the arguments that the Biden administration made when it was announcing this mission, this mission, this, this begging trip to Saudi Arabia was, well, look, it's in the interest of Americans for us to lower the price of gas. We need to do this. Obviously, how could you be against that? And my answer to that is, and this is all in the context with the Ukraine crisis and Russia being cut out of the world markets and so on. My, my response to that is that that's a problem that you can solve much more easily than you think if you took the step, not of going and appeasing and begging for oil from dictatorial regimes like Saudi Arabia or even Venezuela, which was something that was rumored to happen a few months ago, you might remember that. And rather than do that, why go prop up dictatorial, dictatorial regimes when what you could do more easily is liberate the producers of, of fossil fuels here in the United States, who the ones I've spoken to, the ones involved in this industry will tell you they're working in straitjackets. As much as they've been able to increase American supplies, it, it's, it's astonishing. It's a, it's a real uh, achievement despite having done that they're still they've done that despite all the the roadblocks in their way which if you really cared about the supply of fossil fuels the first thing you would do is liberate them to the point where they can actually do their work more efficiently than they are now it's crazy the kind of things they have to to contend with um 
you mentioned something about and, Iran, and, and I think we should talk about that as well, if you want to, but I'll yeah. leave it to you what, what you want to drive at. So no, what, just one comment, uh, because someone here might say, oh, but what you're saying is, uh, okay, you talk about this, an idealistic view of foreign policy, and I would want to challenge it and send the question back to the person who would ask them, say, how does either the neoconservative foreign policy or the quote realist foreign policy what have been the results all these years so for example what has been the result of the enemy of my enemy is my friend what has been the result of supporting saddam for example in the early 80s in the iran iraq war so it's not only that these ideas are wrong in principle they are wrong in principle and because they're wrong in principle they don't work in practice and vice versa so it's not that what we are saying is something which is very radical and unthinkable and we have reality on, uh, opposed to us. Time and again, we see that when you appease, when you try to manipulate uh, the enemy of your enemy, you end up with bigger problems than the one that you could imagine. Because again, you support bad people, bad regimes, bad things are going to happen. But talking about bad people and bad regimes, let's come to the issue of Iran. Again, Iran is the center of the Shiite Islamist movement supporting uh, its, uh, its allies such as, for example, uh, Hezbollah. Saudi Arabia on the other side, it's the center of the Sunni Islamist movement in proxy wars with Iran, in open hostility with Iran. So this is the, this is the context in terms of, uh, in terms of these two these two wannabe superpowers in the in the Islamic world. And of course, the United States has chosen Saudi Arabia. And actually, they are saying uh, we this is a wise choice because the number one danger is Iran. Iran is hostile to us. Saudi Arabia is not hostile to us. Therefore, the choice is obvious. So how do you comment on the issue of uh, of Saudi Arabia versus Iran? Well, there's some truth in the claim that Iran is a problem. It's the problem in the Middle East because it's so central to the Islamist movement. It's a huge inspiration and it funds a big part of the, a number of Islamist groups. You mentioned some of them. And it, But I don't think the choice is either we side with Saudi Arabia and hold our nose, which we actually aren't doing. We just we evade the fact that it's a, a terrible destroyer of freedom. Uh, but the choice presented as well, we have to ally with them because they're also going to help us against Iran. I think the answer to that is we don't need Saudi Arabia to help us deal with Iran. And Iran and Saudi Arabia have their own beef between them. And the Saudis have whatever hostility they have to Iran. Let them sort that out between themselves. Let the Saudis oppose Iran the best they can. They don't need us to do that. We don't need them. And part of what their hostility is about is not, oh, the, the Iranians are going to come here and going to take away our freedom. It's, it's, a, it's, it's in part a sectarian conflict over ridiculous religious differences. So it's not as if the alliance that we have with them is based on common interests. So if you had an alliance between the US and the UK, because they both want to protect their freedom and they're facing off against, hypothetically, someone like Putin, there's a common basis for that relationship. And we're both uh, facing the same threat and we both have a common value we're trying to protect and we can see a benefit in working together. But when you're dealing with Saudi Arabia, there isn't that common ground. We don't need them. And, and I think it, it's, we have to recognize that it's not either we side with one against the other or we do nothing. It's 
we need to be opposed to both of them because what suppose suppose Saudi Arabia becomes the predominant power in the region and Iran shrinks who thinks that's a good idea why would that be better for everybody so it's not as if the Saudis are blameless and and, and friendly it's a, it, there is a consequence to supporting a group that if they got more power in the region, that's not going to turn things the right way either. Uh, and then I, I want to go back to something you said, and maybe we can come back to it later. But you gave this, this, you made this point about there are a lot of cases where when you appease a bad regime, the consequences are really bad. You you side with the enemy and my enemy, and, and that leads to bad consequences. Let's come back to that after in a little while. Because I think there's something really important philosophically about that. Yeah, before we get there, just a historical anecdote that shows how the difference between such regimes are so superficial. So when we had the Salmon Rushdie affair, so uh, remember this, uh, this book that had the Islamic world up in arms. So Khomeini, the leader of Iran, basically declares what is the death sentence for uh, Salmon Rushdie, the so-called fatwa. Now, Saudi Arabia is worried that Iran is leading this campaign of hate and they say, no, Iran's uh, verdict is not proper according to the books. We will tell you what to do. We will we still have to kill him, but first he has to go through a proper Islamic court. So there are differences bet between uh, does the supreme leader give a direct order to kill someone who has a, who is a, who has a, who is a blasphemer? Or shall he go to court and then we kill him? So this shows how in the essence, these regimes are the same. And the essence is zero respect for individual rights, zero respect for the idea such as freedom of speech or the idea that uh, there is something such as uh, I don't know, rule of law or something like that. So again, I think the fact that the one country is an ally and the other is not is more like a historical accident that has very little to do with uh, with principles. And talking about principles, let's go now to the discussion about whether the enemy of my enemy is a friend and what you were about to elaborate on this. Yeah, so two thoughts that I think are important to, to share, and, and I'm interested in your perspective on this. So you mentioned past cases. You mentioned, I think, Saddam. You mentioned... Uh, because and we can go back through history, right? There's there's the famous people refer to Munich as a, an example of um, appeasing Hitler, and there's a lot of cases, um, or sorry, and aligning with the Soviet Union against Hitler. So another case of aligning with the enemy of my enemy. One more that people might remember is that during the um, before the the Taliban came to power in Afghanistan. The U.S. was supportive of the Taliban, including some of the what became Al Qaeda, uh, in, oppo in opposition to the Soviets, and they thought, "Well, we have common enemy with the Soviets." And then it turned out that uh, they came to uh, seize the country in the name of Islam. One of the things that I remember having a conversation with Ankar Gatti, our colleague, a few years ago about this kind of thing, and one of the things he said to me that has really resonated, which is, if you want to show people that appeasement is destructive or this kind of approach of supporting people who are you think are your uh, in alliance with you because of a common enemy and you do it in the absence of moral thinking in the absence of applying principles and i hope i'm capturing the thought accurately Ankar is not here to tell me if this is exactly what he meant but it's, i don't i'll attribute this to him as as spurring this line of thinking maybe not exactly his words and 
it's not enough, it's not sufficient or effective to point to all the examples historically where this fails. Because you can do that endlessly, as you pointed out, and we could spend a, another five episodes talking about historical cases where this was argued for, done, and the consequences were bad. It's almost uh, endless. Part of what I think is going on is that the, the kind of mentality that engages in this is not conceptual. So it's, it's not able to think at the level of anything more abstract than this particular instance. Well, we know what happened here, but why would it apply in another case? So there's, there's no willingness to think at a more abstract level and think, well, is there a principle here? Is there a general issue here? And I think that's connected. So that's sort of an, what Ayn Rand described as an anti-conceptual mentality, really stuck at a very low level of abstraction, unwilling and unable because it's unwilling to go to more abstract conceptual perspective. So I think that's operative. I think another factor is, this goes to the psychology and morality that animates the appeaser mentality. And I think it's um, sort of an, an, a lack of self-confidence that really, do we need to ally with the Taliban to, to oppose the service? Is this even the right decision? And it's not even thinking about your interests in any sort of meaningful way. Uh, anyway, so I think that there's something interesting there to say. And then, um, so, so both the sort of anti-conceptual perspective and this lack of self-confidence, I think they, they interplay in those situations. One final thought that I think is, uh, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I'm interested in your perspective. A lot of the conversation in some of the counter arguments you've been encountering in your reading on this, they make the case, well, well, what's the downside of just sitting down with them? Why, why, maybe there's something we can find some common ground. Maybe we talk to them. What's, what's the problem with that? And there's a, there's a way, and they might even say, well, we might, we're not committing to doing anything with Saudi Arabia or with some other dictatorship, but at least we're talking with them. There might be something this leads to, and at least we know what they're thinking. That's one of the fallback positions. That, uh, and I, I think this is, actually a self-confession type perspective. It tells you about the thinking behind the view rather than any basis for having the view. And I think what part of what it, con it confesses is the inability to realize that what evil needs, what dictators need is what they crave is some moral respectability and that they, they get it from engaging with better countries. And they, I don't know if they will, put it in these words themselves, but it, it's clear that this is a pattern in their behavior. And it, there's a huge benefit to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's implicated in the killing of Khashoggi and, and all the new repression that's come to Saudi Arabia, despite the, the economic modernization that he touts. So for him to sit down with Biden, that's a huge win. Even if nothing comes of it, it's just, I sat down next to Biden, I'm at his level morally. My people see that, the, the victims that I'm oppressing, and everyone else sees that. And so in his mind, that gives him a certain uh, cover, moral cover. Uh, and that's a common, uh, sort of an unrecognized cost and a moral cost that occurs when you engage with e uh, evil and dictatorial and authoritarian regimes at different levels of severity with the premise that, well, there's no downside to sitting down with them and talking with them. I think that there is, and it's a, it, you dignify them, you give them, you, you whitewash them. I mean, I think that's the term that is uh, apt in this context. 
and then it and because of that then it becomes a question of well, what is what's the outcome what can we what are the deliverables we can get from this negotiation as if the fact that you sat down with them is not at all a value to the the country that you're dealing with and that they're they're the ones who are going to benefit the most whatever the concrete outcomes of the negotiation might be uh, so i think that's a significant issue and, and i think that's you can apply that to the long history of America's relationship with Saudi Arabia, because we literally call them an ally. We bring them to Washington, we treat them as dignified and morally credible, and they don't deserve any of it. And they don't, they, we certainly shouldn't be doing that. And they gain from that. Uh, so I think that that's another dimension on this issue that you've raised, which is the enemy, enemy of my enemy is my friend. That That's not, I mean, there are contexts when you might do that, but you have to have an objective basis for it and you have to be thinking very clearly i think it's still dubious but it's certainly not true in the way that the advocates of this view often think it is and it cannot be elevated at the level of a principle which is what many realists realists do and you mentioned about the sanction that such countries need i will give the example of soviet union the most sworn enemy of the West. So if you see what was happening behind the scenes in the 20s and in the 30s, the diplomatic effort by Stalin and the Kremlin for Soviet Union to be officially recognized by the West, it was something which was very, very big. It's an issue of prestige, but also an issue that, okay, then we can ask for loans, then we can ask for direct investments and things like that. So usually it's never we're just going to sit on the table, sitting on the table, which is already bad enough. But then it's, for example, when there is a need, it's okay, we have to help them because these people are, uh, now we are, uh, we are closer. And it leads to a relationship where, again, there is nothing to be gained. That's the most important thing. It can be understood that, let's say, in an emergency, uh, you might have to align for a while with the enemy of your enemy. But the United States is not in such a situation if it finds itself in such a situation regarding its energy needs, it, has some, it is something that the United States has inflicted on itself and the reasons you mentioned them. It's, uh, it's the ideology of environmentalism and the very tight grip it has on US politics and also in the public opinion. So let's hope a land that at least maybe through this journey and through people as you said, seeing the president of the United States shaking the hand of someone who there's very strong evidence that has blood in his heart, people might start asking, why do we need to go there? And what mistakes have we done to find ourselves in this, I would say, embarrassing situation? I just want to uh, pick up on what you said. I, I so I, was it last week I heard you give a talk on the way the Soviet Union was supported by the US and other countries. And, and one of the things that struck me about your presentation, I hope it comes out for people to watch on YouTube soon, the attitude of the Soviets in this context, and I think this connects to Saudi Arabia in, directly, the, the attitude they had was, it'll be on our terms. We'll decide how much grain we get. We'll decide what terms. We'll decide when you can come and give us this foreign aid that keeps us from collapsing in this particular uh, period. And you you shared a quote from Ayn Rand about this the, the way in which the morality of altruism, which is a predominant view in our culture, the idea that sacrifice is the moral good, how that 
in, puts the recipient on the footing of being entitled, feeling entitled and the term setter for this sort of thing and how it puts the giver as perpetually apologetic and, and it can never do enough. And, and that's sort of the attitude that you, you dramatized in the context of 1920s uh, Soviet Union versus the US. I thought it was a very dramatic example of this. And I think there's some of that kind of attitude going on in America's approach to Saudi Arabia. So it's Biden going to Saudi Arabia cup in hand. Will you please stabilize the oil prices for us? You know, we, we're here to be uh, strategic allies with you against Iran, as opposed to we, the, I, I represent the United States, the, the freest country on the planet still, despite its, you know, this decay of freedom. And it is, if I even dignify you with a visit, which is a question we've been talking about for the last hour, you're the one who has to come and apologize and and you're the one who has to show that your intentions are good but that's not a that's not at all the dynamic it's completely reversed and i think this is another manifestation of in a in in a fundamental way in going in in a, pursuing the kind of policy we've had with saudi arabia it is self-sacrificial because we're, we're sacrificing our own ideals we're sacrificing, and consequently, in practice, we're we're weakening our interests in the region. We're not supporting the people we should, who are the dissidents in Saudi Arabia, the people who want more freedom, and we're not, and we're actually supporting the people who are against us, which is the regime. So, in a fundamental way, our policy, because it's incoherent, leads to self-sacrificial behavior, and that puts the recipient, the the Saudi regime and other regimes in the region that we shouldn't be engaging with in this way it puts them in a position of dictating the terms and making themselves feel like, no, of course, you know, uh, uh, we'll decide and you're the ones who have to come and bow before us. How else are you gonna get what you want from us? And that is the perversity that you end up in. So you said it's embarrassing. I, I think that's, you could put it even more strongly. It's inexcusable that we're in this position and it's ultimately not a failure at the level of, if, if Trump were here, it would be better. Or if, if Biden had a, su a successor who was smarter, it's not a political level problem. It manifests that way, of course, but it's fundamentally a moral intellectual failure, the inability to think about what our interests are, what our self-interest consists in, and the principles that need to guide it. And that's, that's for people who are interested in thinking more deeply about this, Ayn Rand's whole approach to thinking about politics, and, and she had a bit to say on foreign policy as well. It, central to all of that is the, the, the crucial importance of morality and moral judgment and using principles as a guide to action. Her whole approach to philosophy is philosophy is, is your means of navigating the world, whether as an individual, as a society, as a government. And that's exactly the view that's been trashed and to, trashed is probably an understatement. It's not at all operative. And I think that's the direction. If there's going to be improvements, there needs to be more of a move towards well, what do we stand for? How, do we going to, how are we going to uphold these ideas? And how do we think about what our interests consist in? Because we certainly don't have a clue right now if, if what Biden is doing, doing in Saudi Arabia is treated as credible and respectable. And I think it's neither of those things. And for uh, my uh, parting uh, words, can I recommend this book? Uh, 
It has some, it's edited by you and Onkar. Recently, Nokon, I got the second edition failing to confront Islamic totalitarianism, what went wrong after 9-11. And the reason I'm mentioning it is, is that it has at least three essays by ULAN on the issue of Saudi Arabia and on the issue of the murder of Khashoggi. So uh, the friends of our podcast, uh, I encourage you to, to check it out. It has essays going back to the aftermath of 9-11, about theories of just war, about Iran, about Saudi Arabia. So it's something which, uh, oh, it's there as well. So it's something that I would recommend to our friends and our viewers. Yeah, and I would offer a couple of, thanks for suggesting that. I would recommend a couple of other resources for people to explore this issue more. One is Ayn Rand's statements about how to think regarding foreign policy. She has some statements that are collected in the Ayn Rand lexicon. You can see the link on the screen. We'll put it in the show notes. And those should lead to other essays that you can go and read more about how she thinks about the particular issues of her day from this philosophic perspective. The final one I'd mention is the book I wrote a few years ago, What Justice Demands. It focuses on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it, it's wider than that. It talks about how to think about American interests in the Middle East generally, and includes discussion of Saudi Arabia, Iran, and a lot of the issues we've talked about today. So people might find that illuminating as well. And the link to that, you can find it on Amazon, search for the title, and you'll be able to find it there. So I think that's all for this week. We are going to be back here, at least you and Onkar will be back here, Nikos, to talk about critical race theory. I think it's a, an interesting perspective on the topic, very hot issue. I think part of what you're going to do is engage honestly with what this view is and yet convey that it's not a rational perspective. So that'll be here uh, scheduled for next week at the usual time. We hope you'll join us then. And thank you for being with us. I'll remind everyone that we invite your questions on the philosophy of objectivism. We enjoy having Q&A episodes and we're gearing up for another one. So if you want to submit your questions about Ayn Rand's philosophy, its application and just the core of it, we welcome that. So send those questions to newideal at aynrand.org. And if you're watching us on YouTube, social media uh, and other platforms, do the following, help us out, reach more people. Uh, subscribe, click the bell, get notifications, like what you see, leave a comment. We'd like to know what you think and just spread the word to help us find new people who are interested in rational ideas. And of course, we welcome your feedback. You're always welcome to send us comments, questions, suggestions. We read everything. We try to respond to most things. Newideal at ironrand.org. And I'll be back next time. See you. Thanks for joining me today, Nikos. Thanks a lot. Thank you all. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.